Y'all, we appreciate Samuel Merritt University so much for continuing to help keep this podcast going. They want us to tell you about their new Advance Your Practice Scholarship. They're offering a $10,000 scholarship to anyone who enrolls in their MSN, DNP, or Family Nurse Practitioner programs. Samuel Merritt University has been educating nurses for over 100 years. If you're interested in getting more information about the programs, you can visit them at fnp.samuelmerritt.edu and show them how much you appreciate them for sponsoring our podcast. That's fnp.samuelmerritt.edu. And as always, we'll put that link on our website at goodnursebadnurse.com. I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing, to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there. And you can also see what they pay, the stipend, the hourly rate, all of that. I'm a travel nurse now with Trusted Health, and I absolutely love working for them. So go to trustedhealth.com, be sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they'll know that we sent you there and fill out a profile today. Hey, everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Welcome back to a special edition of Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, a crossover edition. So before we get started, I do want to say that I know I've spent a lot of time on several episodes discussing Redonda Vaught and this whole case. So for those of you who are just probably getting really sick of hearing me talk about this, I'm really not going to apologize because I think it's very important. But next week, we are going to get back on track and have an episode that has nothing to do with this case. So for those of you um, who are kind of getting tired of hearing about it, next week, all you. So right now, though, this is first and foremost in the minds of lots of nurses and healthcare professionals everywhere. And I have to do everything that I possibly can to bring awareness to this issue. So I want to welcome two very special guest hosts this week. Some of you might remember me talking about my latest true crime obsession, my podcast that I like to listen to a lot, and that is The Prosecutors. So none other than Brett and Alice, the very hosts themselves, are here to talk to yours truly about the Redondavat case and the prosecution of healthcare professionals for medical errors. Brett and Alice, thank you so, so much for being here. Thank you for having us. We are so excited to be on your podcast, and thank you for bringing awareness to this case. I think we've all read a lot about it, but to have your expertise speaking in on this issue, I think, is really invaluable. Yeah, thank you so much. It's such an honor to be here with you. This is really exciting. Thank you. I'm really excited to get to cover this with Brett and Alice because they always do such a thorough job of spelling out the details in these high-profile true crime cases that they cover on their podcast. And I'm going to tell you guys that they literally changed my mind about a very, like, a really popular case that I have been, I've been watching this case for years. I've seen all the documentaries, all the true crime stories, listened to all the podcasts on this case. And then when I listened to their version of it, I actually changed my mind. I was so shocked by the end of it that I actually could change my mind about that. But the Darley Routier case, I couldn't believe it. When I got to the end, I was just like, oh my gosh, I always thought she was innocent. And if you listen to the whole, if you listen to it, there are some details in there that I don't think I had ever heard before. And I swear I've heard it all. If you guys are interested in that case, or really any case, it's a 
excellent podcast to listen to because they really do a great job just sort of staying neutral the whole time. And so you get to just listen to it. And it's so interesting hearing it from a prosecutor's uh, point of view. I love it so much. They really put you right there in the, the, the legal world. And it's so much fun. And so I really uh, would highly recommend that you go and listen to their podcast. So I guess we can get started, Brett and Alice. I want to start off by letting you sort of tell our listeners what you know about the case, because I definitely have talked and talked about this case. I've appeared on other podcasts, I've been interviewed by news media, and I just like to know what you know. What have you heard about the story? I know you've done some research. What's your take on it? Well, this was a case that as soon as it happened, people immediately wanted to know what we thought about it. So that so I learned about this case from our Facebook page, because people said, hey, you got to cover this, you got to look into this. And then very shortly after that, you reached out to us to see whether or not we would want to come on the show and talk about it. So then we kind of really kind of dove into it. Obviously, read a lot of the news reports, but more importantly, took a look at some of the trial itself, wanted to have an idea of what the actual evidence was in the case. Obviously, I don't think we have to go through the details. I'm sure everyone listening knows what we're talking about, the Redonda Fight case. And this question of, can a nurse be held criminally liable for a mistake that, and I think everyone agrees it's a mistake, that the prosecutor's kind of, eh, we'll talk about that a little bit in a second, but that leads to the death of a patient. And it's a fascinating question, and it's a difficult question. And personally, I'm looking forward to walking through some of the things that I found compelling and see your thoughts from your side of the aisle on this. You know, what's so interesting is in researching this case, it's hard to get away from just the news reports. And we do this all the time on our podcast. We try to go to the primary source, in this case, the trial transcript, the filings in the case, which, as you'll find out from reading the news articles, very rarely do any of the news articles in general for any case. This case is really no exception. Do they quote to any of the legal documents? For one thing, it's not good journalism. Legal writing is kind of jargony and difficult to understand. So I understand why journalists who are storytellers don't want to be quoting court documents. But also, secondarily, it's sometimes hard to find those documents without any sort of legal knowledge. So if you're just looking at the articles, very rarely does a news article link to any of the primary sources, which makes research for the non-legal person difficult. I only point that out because if you hear things that we say today that you haven't heard before, I don't think it's anyone meaning to be misleading within the news reporting, but rather it's almost like there's this whole legal underbelly of documents and troves of information that are out there that's not easily accessible, though it's all there for anyone who knows how to look for it to find. So that's what we're hoping to bring to light today, because in the news reporting that I read, it all read kind of the same. I was looking for facts to support the jury verdict, and I couldn't see any facts. You know, it was just either outrage or arguments against, but no attacks on kind of the sufficiency of the evidence. And that's what you look at when you're looking at trial evidence here. I will say that that is a common problem we see in researching any sort of case. And certainly when I first started out looking at this case, it was difficult to know where to look at first because this is not a federal case. Federal cases, there's kind of more of a single place because it's federal. And no matter what state you're in, what district you're in, you can go to one resource to find those documents. But when you have state and local cases, they each have their own filing system even, and it can be difficult to find within it. And I'll say this, Tina, you more than maybe any other reporter in the country may have a better grasp of this case just because you actually sat through the entire trial. 
And I feel like, you know, it's so valuable to have these kind of discussions because most people, they don't know the facts. You know, they're going on the headlines. The headlines are obviously very outraged. It was until I actually watched on the trial, it was hard for me to even understand why she was convicted or what exactly happened. So it was interesting to look at the arguments on both sides and to really grasp it better. And and I'm looking forward to diving into that. And and I just want to say to start off, this kind of case, criminally negligent homicide, involuntary manslaughter, whatever it is, wherever you are, are the most difficult cases to decide whether to prosecute, to prosecute and to explain to people. Because at the end of the day, the person who was charged didn't mean to do anything wrong. You know, they did not intend to hurt anyone. I actually thought this case was overcharged. Now, the prosecution actually charged her with reckless homicide, which I think it was completely ridiculous. And the jury, say what you want to about the jury and their verdict, they recognize this was not reckless homicide. This was not someone who disregarded risk to life and was acting recklessly. This was somebody who, in the heat of the moment, as a nurse, in a situation where there's a lot going on, it's not even her patient, she's overworked, she's asked to do something, she does it, and something horrible happens. She had no intention to do it. She's been completely cooperative ever since. She's talked about this openly. She's gone before the medical board and explained exactly what she did, which is another thing I want to talk about, the effect that had on the case. But these are the most difficult cases, and you see this a lot. You know, there are two examples outside of nursing that immediately spring to mind for me when I think about this. And I just want to bring those out so people can think of sort of other circumstances where this happened. There was a case, I believe it was in Colorado, it involved a trucker. And basically, this was someone who was driving long-haul trucking. They're going up and down the mountains. And if you've ever been out in Colorado in the mountains, you know, on the downslopes, there's always lots of warning signs. Talk about check your brakes and exit ramps, all this other stuff. So this trucker, he loses control of his truck. He strikes several cars. Several people die. Everyone agrees this was a complete accident. He didn't mean to. He's charged with negligent homicide. He's convicted. He actually ends up getting, because of the way the laws are and how many people died, he gets a ton of time. And there was a lot of sort of outrage about it. And people, I think, justifiably thinking it was way too much time for for his actions. But the reason that this happened to him was he had stopped before the accident and his brakes were literally red hot. They were smoking, which is a clear sign. Your brakes are almost about to give out. He was going down the the highway. There were several turnoffs. He didn't take the turnoffs, the sort of emergency truck turnoffs you see. And his brakes gave out, and he crashed. And so this was sort of a similar thing. Didn't mean to do it, but people died, and he was tried. Another one, which I think certainly people have heard of, there was a police officer, I believe in Michigan, who was during a traffic stop, and she meant to pull her taser and tase the person. And instead, she pulled her gun and shot the person. And everyone agrees she did not intend to shoot the person. Everyone agrees it was a complete accident. But she was charged with a similar charge and found guilty. And sort of the idea was, look, as a police officer, you have a higher standard of care. And you just, sorry, I mean, we know it was an accident, but you just can't do that. You just can't do that. That has to be something you avoid. And in my mind, this case is similar to those in that it seems like somebody who was trying to do the right thing And because some circumstances sort of surrounding what was going on with them, they make a terrible mistake and someone dies. And then the question is, what do you do about it? And that's a really great point that Brett just pointed out, because I think there's two very important discussions to be having here. One of them, the law itself for negligent homicide exactly takes that intent into mind. Negligent. It's not intentional. And so there's whether this particular case had sufficient evidence in order to convict her of the elements of that crime 
that exists in the law books. The second question, which I really think is where the outrage seems to be centered around, and it's a very interesting question and a difficult question, like Brett has noted, is whether that should be a crime at all. And that's kind of a difficult conversation because those two things can meld oftentimes. There's obviously the specific case in front of us with the facts that came out in the trial and sufficiency of the evidence taking into account that the law just does exist. And then the broader kind of meta question as to whether the law should exist as well. Should we be criminalizing people who do not intend to cause such drastic harms, right? And An example that you often hear of these kind of cases, which doesn't work here at all, and the, the, the prosecution attempted in their closing arguments to try and do a little twist on this. Drunk driving is an example of criminally ne- negligent homicide. You get drunk, get in your car, you hit somebody, that's criminally negligent homicide. You obviously didn't mean to hurt them, but because you were driving drunk, we're going to hold you responsible. The problem is, and the reason that is so different from what we have here, even though it's the same statute, Obviously, you decided to drink, and you decided to get in your car, and you decided to do this thing that's risky. And the question here is, did this nurse make a conscious decision to do anything that led to this accident? The prosecution, in their closing argument, they mentioned drunk driving, and they said, this is actually worse. They tried to make it it even worse, which is a very classic sort of prosecution move when you've got sort of a weakness. Oh, no, this is actually worse. And they basically said she was driving with her eyes closed. She got in the car, she knew it was dangerous, and she just decided to ignore all possible warnings and drive anyway. And that that was sort of their position of what she was doing. Boy, I did hear that analogy. It drove me crazy, Alice. I was telling Brett before you got on that there's so many times I wanted to be in contempt of court and yell, that's not at all. But of course, I had more self-control than that. Thank goodness. But what I would say, and, I, and they did use the analogy in their opening statement about the the police officer, I think the, the prosecutor that did the opening statement, did that on purpose to try to put that thought into the minds of the jury. <laughs> I think that was very strategic because she specifically brought up that case. And actually, they did it before when they were choosing their drawers. They asked them, would you, do you think that police officer should have been tried? Do you think that police officer should have been found guilty? And I think they were trying to almost plant the seed as if they were the same. And I don't think it was the same. I think that that police officer knows that there is a gun right beside the taser. So you have to know that there's a gun and a taser. How do you not know there's a gun and a taser right beside each other? Redonda pulled out that medication and there was, it's not like there were two and she was having to, she only thought she had the one that she was supposed to give to administer. So that's where I feel like it would be different. What I always like to say when I talk about this case is that We could take apart every single step of everything that she did that day and find all of the steps that she, you know, the missteps that she made and the holes, the things that she overlooked and all of those things. But if you look at the over 250,000 deaths that are caused each year by medical errors, I guarantee you, most of those you're going to, if you look at them under a microscope, you're going to find human error involved in a lot of those where someone not only did you just make a, a mistake in a moment, but you skipped over some safety protocols because we're humans. And so even though you have these safety protocols in place, we also work in a healthcare system that is buckling under the weight of 
even before COVID, I mean, yes, the pandemic, but even before that, so many nurses are given way too many patients to be able to safely care for. And so we become accustomed to shaving off time in places and going well, like, okay, I can't do that, can't do that, because otherwise I will never be able to care for my patient. People literally will die. So as you become accustomed to to doing that and practicing that way, you make bad habits. And the system almost forces you to make these bad habits by skipping over safety protocols. If you could literally follow every single safety protocol to the T, just like if you could drive, if you could get in your car and everyone followed every single rule, every single law, traffic law to the letter, would there be any wrecks? Probably not many. So many people would not die if everyone just did exactly what they were supposed to. But the problem is we're human beings and we don't. We get to living and, and working in a system around other human beings and you kind of mimic each other. There's pressure put on you. Nurses give two patients in the ICU and then another one comes along, another patient comes along and the charge nurse says, oh, you have to have a third. And is the nurse going to say, oh, that's unsafe? evidence-based practice says that I'm not supposed to have more than two patients in an intensive care unit. Well, you have, you're working under so much pressure that you can't, you're not able to say that. You can't say it because everybody's just going to go, oh, you think you're, you can't take the third patient. I took third patient. Everybody else took third patient. So that's how that system works. We, we work in the system and then we skip the safety protocols and everybody knows it. Vanderbilt knows it. Every hospital knows all of those people, the, the nurse manager, everybody that worked in that hospital knew that what Redonda Vaught was doing, the way she was practicing her nursing, the, the hitting override, the administering a medicine and then moving on to the next thing, that's the way nurses have to practice or you can't get your job done. And yet something like this happens and bam, she's under the bus and you should have followed the, the safety protocols. And the rest of us are sitting there going, what about us? We... You don't give us a system in which we can do that. That's It's kind of not fair to judge us that way. You know, it's funny. I remember having this conversation in criminal law, which was the first class I ever took in law school. It was literally the first class I ever took. I remember sitting in criminal law and being like, wow, I'm in law school. This is crazy. And we had this conversation about punishments and crimes and how, in many ways, punishment and whether you commit a crime is pure luck. And I'll give you some examples from that. So we all speed, right? I mean, you just talk about traffic laws. We all speed. We've all gone 80 and a 60 or 90 and a 70 or, or more than that. We've all on occasion ran a stop sign. Even if we didn't mean to, we've done it, right? We've all texted while we're driving. Pretty much anybody who drinks has probably driven at some point when they shouldn't have. Even if they try not to, sometimes it's difficult to avoid that. Lots of people do these things all the time. But if you run the stop sign, there happens to be a pedestrian there. Or if you happen to look down to respond to that text and you get in a wreck, or if you happen to drive drunk and someone dies, or whatever, whatever happens, then you're the unlucky person who has to suffer the consequences for that. And I think there's just a question of at what point do you have to just say, even if everybody does it, when someone died because of her doing it, does she have to be punished? Now, I think your point about the system is a really good one. There has to be introspection in the medical field, not necessarily with nurses, but with, like you were saying, the, what put her in a situation where this would happen. But I don't know that that is, that is necessarily limited to her. You know, we talked about a truck driver earlier. 
truck drivers will tell you they're the system puts immense pressure on them to be on the road basically 24 hours a day to limit their sleep to take drugs to get them through it yes there are regulations that require them to to take you know to, to sleep and that's why they carry double books because they have one set of books that shows them sleeping and then there's a reality where they get paid which shows them that they never sleep you know pilots are the same way pilots are supposed to take time off but there's limited pilots and everything else police officers are overworked and when does, I guess, the system stop being enough to prevent you as an individual from having to bear responsibility when something does happen? I mean, you mentioned the 200, I think 250,000 deaths every year. If, my, if I remember correctly from looking at this, that's the third leading cause of death in the country, medical errors. I mean, that's crazy to me, right? I mean, it's heart disease, cancer, medical errors, followed by respiratory disease. And, you know, the devil's advocate side of this might say, Maybe we need to be prosecuting more people. You know, maybe this has become such a problem that that somebody somewhere needs to take a hard look at why this is happening and determine is it just that's the nature of things because people are coming in sick and they're at their worst and there's so much pressure and you have to make quick decisions and bad things are going to happen. Or has there become almost a culture of negligence where this is just sort of tolerated and maybe it shouldn't be? I don't know if that's true, but I think that's sort of the devil's advocate position. Yeah. And, you know, to add on to that, you know, Tina, when you were talking about the culture that has created that type of nurse, that anyone could be redundant, that everyone, in fact, is her at some point in their career when they are overstretched, they're undertrained, what have you. And what that brought to mind is a different scenario. And that is in many different states and localities, the Child Protective Services. We all know about that. They hardly are ever in the news until something horrendous goes wrong, right? You'll hear a state's child protective services. I'm not even going to list a state because they've all been in the news before. And whenever it happens to them, it is horrible. No one knows that they exist. No one would want to raise taxes. They vote no on taxes. Each referendum or each time there's, you know, a local bill to raise money for child protective services so that they can increase social workers to go into the homes and properly check that these children who are in the... um who are either at risk of being abused in the homes they're in or have been taken from the homes and placed into foster homes are, in fact, safe. And it's known across really just about every jurisdiction's Child Protective Services that there are not enough resources. There are not enough social workers. There's not enough mental health experts to support the social workers themselves who face immense vicarious trauma in dealing with this kind of work. And they themselves can't control the number of patients in a way, just like a nurse can cannot, right? You're not going to say, I, I'm not going to check on this 100th child who's entered the foster care system because 99 is my limit, right? You just say yes, whether you can actually do it or not. And the result of that sort of overstretched culture is that if kids should be visited every week, they instead are visited maybe once a year, maybe never, maybe they're never laid eyes on and there's just a call. And over time, like Brett was saying, there could be this culture of negligence until something horrendous happens, some abuse that has gone on for so long that leads to a child's death. And that makes the national news. And that agency comes under indictment. And that probably social worker comes under indictment. And there could even be criminal charges. And everyone points their finger at the individual who resulted in this child's death. But then finally, the the attention that was needed on this overstretched environment, this overstretched system finally comes to light. And 
as sad as that one particular case is, I think we see it in that context more often. People start thinking, well, why don't we have more social workers? Why don't we support our social workers more? Children shouldn't be dying because of the environment that our social workers and our child protective services agencies are forced to face. And you see a blip, right? You see a blip in either resources, attention, what have you. But I will tell you those prosecutors in those jurisdictions they see those types of cases they could prosecute all the time. I just happen to have personal experience in this particular field, and they do not prosecute social workers for every case that could be prosecuted. They're, they're waiting for the worst case to make a point. And I don't know if that's the situation in this particular jurisdiction with Redonda, whether they've been waiting for a case, they saw this over time, and they needed the right case to bring this case, one that they knew they could win, and one that would be such an overhaul of the entire system that it would be worth bringing all the heat for taking this prosecution. They knew what they were going to face when they brought this. They absolutely knew the blowback. It's not like they're surprised by this. We haven't, we don't know the prosecutors. We didn't speak to them about this. But if you're going to bring a case like this, you know you are going to be you know, feet to the fire and everyone is going to disagree with your decision to bring this case because there is such a um, strong and educated community that is affected by this, right? The medical community. And so having seen it on the child protective services side, I just note that prosecutors have prosecutorial discretion. And I would be surprised if this was the first case that was brought to their desk. Now, any cases that are not prosecuted are not brought to light for lots of reasons. You have your rights, you know, your constitutional rights. And so if we decide to investigate an individual and we don't bring charges, we don't then kind of wave it out there like, you got away this time. We didn't prosecute you, Nurse Brett. But boy, were you close to the line. We don't say that because we didn't bring it to the grand jury and we didn't bring it before a jury of your peers in order to bring those charges. So just have that in mind that this likely was not an oopsie-daisy, this case just landed on my desk, but rather probably a lot of thought went into it for a long time in terms of the culture they were dealing with, the medical board in this particular jurisdiction, the um, practices they were seeing probably repeatedly. And they probably, is my guess, had urgings from the medical board and the medical community to do something like this for some time, which they probably turned down for a while. Again, I'm just speaking from my experience. I don't know that to be the case. But to bring a case like this, there is usually a lot of background that the rest of the public doesn't see before this indictment was brought, before this trial went forward. And Tina, I would be interested to know just your thoughts on sort of a, a general question. You know, in your view, do you think there's ever a circumstance in which a nurse should be charged for something like this, like an involuntary situation, not somebody who goes around trying to kill their patients or somebody who even acts recklessly, but a situation where a nurse makes, I mean, what I think it, this case has been described as she gave her the wrong medication. I think it was more of a cascade of errors. I think it's more like there were so many different things that happened, any one of which maybe this wouldn't have happened. Because, and I think this goes back to something Alice said at the very beginning of our conversation, this question of, is this something that should be a criminal matter at all? Or should it just be, for instance, in the hands of the medical board? And sort of the second part of that question is that. I know the medical board, before she was charged, and maybe, I don't know if she'd been charged yet, but the medical board did take her license. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on that as well. Did the medical board act correctly in this case? 
So the way that this uh, actually happened is when it first happened, it was reported to the Board of Nursing, and the Board of Nursing sent a letter to the nurse saying that they had investigated it and no further action was to be taken, and that she no suspension, she got to keep her license, she was able to continue working as a nurse. It wasn't until someone made an anonymous call to the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services and then and told them, hey, you know what? A patient actually died because of a medication error back in December, just FYI. And so then they went and investigated. It was like, surprise, we're going to, we're here. We heard there was a medication error that led to a death and we're here to, to investigate. And so then Vanderbilt started scrambling because then they they saw the records, they found it, and they were like, wait, why does this death certificate say that this patient died of a brain bleed and cardiac arrest when you fully knew that the patient obviously died because of a medication error? And oh, 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 you know, so they started backpedaling. They were at risk for losing all of their Medicare and Medicaid funding, a fifth of their income the hospital was. And so that was in November. This the the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services that anonymous call was placed I believe in October. Then in November was when they went, they did the surprise visit and then Redonda was was arrested. The medication error happened in December of 2017. She was fired the very next month. Like I don't even think she ever went back to work. I think she had taken some time off and then she was immediately let go. The hospital board, you know, a different board investigated the hospital because of its actions. And then they were, nothing ever happened to them. But then because of this anonymous tip, you know, Vanderbilt starts backpedaling and, oh, we're going to make some changes. What what changes did you make? Well, we fired the nurse. <laughs> I just, I, I feel like that was their answer. We fired the nurse. So, you know, that was really what was wrong. There was nothing wrong with our system. But then eight or nine months later, they actually made some changes in the system. They didn't do it right away. They waited until after you know, Medicare and Medicaid came along. And then they put extra warning on the, the PIXIS system so that whenever you, first of all, if you have to look up Vecronium, you have to type in PAR for paralytic. You have to type that in. And then if you do, it says, this is a paralyzing agent patient must be intubated before administered or something like that, like on the screen. They also put scanners down in the radiology department, because there were no scanners down there in the radiology department that the nurse did not have the ability to verify the five rights, even though everybody kept insisting, why didn't she verify the five rights? I don't know how in the world she was supposed to do that. There was no medical record. How do you verify who a patient is if you don't have something to verify it against? There is no medical record. If you don't have a computer, that's where the medical record is. They don't have hand charts anymore. And so that nurse that was on there for the expert witness for the prosecution who has probably not worked the bedside for 20 years, didn't even understand the fact that there was no way to verify the medication. You, you could, you, I don't care if you looked right at it. If you thought Vecaronium was the generic version of Versed, you still would think that. It's not going to do you a bit of good. You, it, I don't know. Anyway, so I think that, you know, you asked me if I feel like there was anything, you know, a nurse could do or any healthcare, you know, professional could do, I guess, to that, Aside from just absolute deliberate sloppiness, like showing up intoxicated or, you know, something like that, obviously something that if you're doing something uh, that you know would put someone at risk, that's different. But if you're just doing your job, you're literally doing your job and you're 
not so far out of the realm of what, the way everyone else around you is, is doing it. That this is the way the hospital has allowed this system to work. This is what everyone at Vanderbilt knew. This is the way that these nurses were performing. And so it's not like this one nurse did this really strange rogue action. It was within the behavior that any nurse would have acted. And that's what a lot of nurses said. I I don't know that I would have... uh, necessarily, a lot of nurses have said this, that they didn't know that they would necessarily have stood there and monitored the patient after giving that tiny little dose of of Versed, what it should have been. So they would maybe have administered it, left, and then if if it wasn't effective and they needed more, they would come back. A lot of nurses say that. A lot of nurses said that about this case. Like, why are they acting like she was so grossly negligent? She really didn't do anything so different than what and this is what, that, that that was the system. It was the system that set her up for failure. And that's what I believe. That's fascinating to hear all of that background. And here is, this is probably why people hate lawyers, but this is what I heard when you were talking about that. The hospital had this environment, right? That everyone accepted that this is how we have to do our jobs, even if the medical experts and even themselves may have said, of course, this isn't best practices, but I cannot do best practices based on what I'm given. And that wasn't going to change. And it didn't change even after someone died until the risk of prosecution. Now, that leads to the greater question of, you know, should she be the scapegoat for the entire nursing community? That is a much bigger question. But what I heard was that hospital didn't do a single thing. And it sounds like it wasn't just Vanderbilt Hospital, but rather the entire nursing environment across hospitals, because obviously Vanderbilt trains nurses and then they go out and work elsewhere. And so the nursing practice environment likely has a lot of similarities across hospitals, while I understand one hospital can just be more lax than others. But what you've described is that Vanderbilt wasn't allowing anyone to do best practices, and they didn't do anything more than just fire the scapegoat. So she was, let's say she was the scapegoat already. She was fired. So she was no longer able to practice her profession at a, you know, an institution that is revered in this community. And then on top of that, it wasn't until the reason anyone investigates, it's not just about funding. It's because of criminal liability that people start making those changes. And they feared that because once anyone starts investigating, you investigate for the purposes of then doing something about it. Prosecution is when they started, it sounds like, at least building an environment that would allow best practices to happen. Now, whether they actually can happen or not, I I don't know. But that is actually the goal of prosecution, is not to get every bad actor off the street and not to get every negligent homicide doer off the street, but rather to shake up a system that is so entrenched in what will only lead to further destruction and to upset the apple cart. And it sounds like this prosecution actually succeeded in that, as devastating as it is on the personal level, not just for Redonda, but for all the nurses, because they can put themselves in that seat. But I I want you to know kind of where we're coming from, which is that the prosecution, it sounds like, finally did what even the death of 250,000 patients couldn't do. Welcome, Leah. I just wanted to chat with you a little bit about your experience with CBD stat. Which product do you actually use? So there's four products, the roll-on, the cream, the salve, and the oil. The two that I use every day are the cream and the oil. What is your biggest benefit? How does it help you? The cream 
I put on every day after work. I'll shower and then I'll put it on my feet just to help my arches. No more shin splints, just my feet feel more comfortable. And the cream has been a lifesaver there. And then I use the oil to help me sleep. So I just switched jobs. I had been working nights for the last eight years. So the oil was huge on helping me come home and actually get quality of sleep throughout the day. And I wake up feeling well-rested and not groggy like some other medications have made me feel in the past. I didn't realize that about the feet and I have plantar fasciitis. So now I literally cannot wait to get off here and go try that. And then just the sleep benefit, that one is definitely well-known. I hear that a lot in the feedback that I've gotten. As you guys know, their products are 100% THC-free. CBD Stat has a team of engineers that invented a very unique and efficient process to produce CBD isolate, which is the purest form of CBD. They only offer very strong products, greater than a thousand milligrams. If you guys are interested in CBD stat in their product, you can go to cbdstat.care forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. Be sure and put the forward slash good nurse, bad nurse in there so they know that we sent you there. cbdstat.care. Be sure and put .care instead of .com forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. There are a couple of things that I feel pretty confident about in this case. I mean, the first one is that Vanderbilt is not innocent. It would not surprise me if Vanderbilt is not sued civilly by the family of this person. Wouldn't shock me at all. I don't know whether CMS will do anything or not, but you know, it just clearly it feels like Vanderbilt is responsible in some way. And you're right. I mean, it's pretty clear that once this happened, they did everything they could to cover it up. Or not cover it up, but to cover themselves. The second thing, and I mean, this may be controversial, I don't know, but... I don't think there's any question that Redonda is guilty. Under just the statute and the way it's written and the elements you have to prove, I think it's pretty clear that the prosecution met the elements. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean the prosecution should have brought the case. I and mean, there's a thing called prosecutorial discretion where a lot of times there are people who are guilty and you know they are guilty, but because of the, all the circumstances and you look at the entire circumstances, you decide not to bring a prosecution. These prosecutors, I mean, that, that is, Alice and I talk about this on our podcast all the time. One of the most important roles of a prosecutor is to decide what cases not to bring, cases that you probably could bring anyway, but that is one of the great powers invested in prosecutors. As Alice said, these prosecutors decided to bring this case. We don't know why. We don't know what went into that or what considerations went into it or not. But I do think, you know, when you look at the, at the elements, I, I think they were met. One thing you said was interesting that I really feel like this case probably came down to was experts. You know, these jurors are not, they're not nurses. They're not doctors. All they have is what's in front of them. Experts can be really important. And it sounds like the prosecution expert was really important. As a layperson, as someone who's not in the medical profession, I mean, there, there are facts in this case that I just can't understand. I know, you know, Redonda's defense talks a lot about alarm fatigue. So, you know, see so many alarms, you, you just, you stop really paying attention to it. For me, one of the most powerful things prosecution did was just their physical exhibits of, here's a vial of viracurinium or whatever you pronounce it. <laughs> and here's Versed. And look at it. It's got the red thing on top. And if you look to stick a needle in there, it says paralyzing agent. And it came in a powder form, not a liquid. And in order to reconstitute it, you have to look at the label where it says ver I doesn't want to mess this up forever. Vercoronium bromide, you know, and how could she miss that? And, you know, that was sort of powerful for me. And another thing that was powerful for me, and I'm interested what your thoughts are on this. It seemed to me that even if she had gotten Versed, 
she still was violating many different things that she should have done. And a couple of things I want to point out that I heard, and, and I'm interested on your thoughts. Number one, the orders for one to two milligrams, one milligram to be administered, then observe the patient. Do they need another milligram? Give them another milligram. There was testimony at trial that she had a 10 milligram, 10 milliliter, you know, all same syringe that she filled it all the way up. And then she gave her half, which would be five. And this was important for the prosecution because they wanted to prove that the vicaronium is actually what killed her because that was also in dispute. Did she actually die for injury that had brought her in or was it this mistake that killed her? And so one of the things they want to point out is like, look, we have this radiology technician who's not a nurse, but she's watching her and she sees her give her at least three, maybe five milligrams. And then she just leaves. And so those were things that I thought were interesting is the, it's not just the mistake of getting the drug, it's how she administered the drug also seems to have been out of step with how she should have administered it, even if it were the drug she thought she was getting. One thing I didn't understand, there was there were several times that the nurses that were sitting there in the courtroom would look at each other and go, why is he not saying this? If you have a, a little vial of, of Versed, it is it comes two milligrams per milliliter. So if I were to try to draw up the whole two milliliters or the, t- the whole two milligrams into a, a saline syringe because you want to dilute it. It's kind of thick and it hurts when it goes into the vein. So you want to dilute it to be kind to your patient and not hurt when you push it. And so what I could see her doing is squirt out a milliliter or so from maybe not even a whole milliliter, maybe two milliliters. You want to dilute it, but you don't have to necessarily dilute it with nine milliliters of normal saline. You can squirt out enough that you know, then you're going to draw back the whole ML out of the vial. Now you have two milligrams in however much saline is in there. So all you have to do is look at the, and sometimes what I'll do is when I'm squirting it out, squirting out the normal saline out of the syringe, the flush, then if I squirt out too much and now I'm like, oh crap, now I've I've squirted out just a little more than a milliliter. Well, then I go ahead and squirt out what's equivalent to another milliliter. So now I've squirted out two because it's easier to to see the tick marks on there on on a whole ml, if that makes any sense. So now I only have eight mls of normal saline and then I drop one ml of the, the Versed and now I have nine total mls of fluid in there, okay? Now, if I only want to administer one milligram of Versed, I need to give half of that. And I'm going to... So, and a lot of times in my mind, I'm going to try to make that add up to something that's easy. So I'm going to draw it up so that my total that I'm left with in the syringe is maybe eight milliliters of total fluid, because then I can give four and then be left with four. Does that make sense? Or maybe she had some other way of doing it. No, and that makes total sense. And let me just go back to what I was saying. I think the expert testimony is so important because I that the way you just explained that makes total sense. That was never explained to the jury. I don't know why that wasn't drawn out in cross-examination of the prosecution's expert or why they didn't bring their own expert to explain that method. And let me say two things. I believe it's one of two things that the defense was thinking. One is that's not what actually happened, that while that is a practice that happens, they couldn't either she herself couldn't remember what she was doing or, in fact, she didn't do that and it was 
however but many the fact million. that it could happen because they were just saying look at how much is left you're totally right if i were defense even if i couldn't definitively say that she had done that i would put out the practice that you just said mm-hmm. because it causes confusion and that's what reasonable doubt is poke enough holes i don't know if she fits into what you just described but that mm-hmm. practice exists that's what i don't understand is i don't understand why even if the defense didn't know definitively if that happened for her why they didn't bring out that practice practice, because I think that would have been a very effective cross-examination of the prosecution's expert. And as I recall, thinking now that Alice has said that, it spurs a memory, the defense was really adamant. And, and you know, it's defense strategy, right? Like, I think the defense strategy was as much, it didn't kill her, as it was, you shouldn't convict her because of the mistake, right? Like, they were as much on the vercuronium is not what caused her death. And so... My recollection is they really pushed that she did not do that, that she did not give five milliliters, that she only gave the very small amount that she was supposed to give, the one milliliter, and therefore, how can you prove that that this drug killed her because that's such a small amount, even of your coronium, and so that is reasonable doubt, and therefore, you shouldn't hold her responsible for the death. And what Alice says, I mean— there's the trial, and there's sort of the strategy of the defense, and then there's sort of truth and reality, and, and the two things don't always mesh. And it may have just been that the defense thought that what I said was true earlier. You know, when I said, you know, if you just look at the elements, she's pretty guilty. The defense might have thought, yeah, if you just look at the elements based on what she did, whatever sort of the policy arguments might be, she's going to be found guilty. So the only chance we have is to prove that she is not responsible for the death. That is the great weakness of the prosecution's case. You have somebody who comes in with a head injury who, you know, that very well could have killed her. You have a medical examiner who's kind of squishy on whether or not, you know, what exactly the cause of death was. So maybe if we just really hit cause of death, we'll win. And in the end, that actually blew up in their face because somebody like me, who's not an expert, hears, wow, she put five milliliters in? That seems like way too much. Another thing you said that the prosecution pointed out the patient at one point said that it burned, that the shot burned. It sounds like when I heard that, I was like, oh, that's a red flag. She should have done something. But it sounds like, no, Versed burns, based on what you're saying. And that was not something the defense brought out. And I would say that this patient, this is an, an, an IV that's in the neck. It was probably not hooked up to any kind of fluid. So it had been what, what we call INT'd or just saline locked. And when that happens, it sits there up against the blood vessel. And so it hurts a little bit when you first flush it because it, it, it's not, it doesn't have something gl- going through it all the time. So then when you flush it, so you have to kind of be careful. And I'll usually like do it kind of gently at first. Does that hurt? And I'm sure that's what Rodonda was doing. Are you okay? Slow, slow it down a little bit. There's no reason to just stop everything. Oh my goodness, it hurts. If I did that, you would never get anything done in the hospital. If every time you went to, you can look at a patient and they'll go, ow. You know, I mean, some people just, everything hurts. So that it's not at all unusual to start pushing something, the patient to go, oh, that burns. And then just stop and go, okay, are you all right? All right, I'm gonna slow it down. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. Okay. And then you just, everything's fine. I agree that I didn't really understand I guess I do understand because the fact is that they did put on the meta- on the the death certificate that it she died from a, a brain bleed and cardiac arrest. So he's looking at that like, well, did she or didn't she? And if there is, th- there was no autopsy. And so if there's any, if he could create any reasonable doubt, as you guys tell me all the time on your podcast, then you've 
you can win one ju- if you can win one juror over that goes well what if she did die of something else it's not really fair that you did they didn't do an autopsy i don't i i think everybody in the world knows she died because of that med error including redonda and redonda said it i mean everybody knows that so it, I do think that was ridiculous. But one thing I wanted to highlight that Brett said, and I think you touched on, reality and truth does not always match up with what's presented as the story. And when you said, you know, you and other nurses would look at each other during the trial and think, why isn't anyone saying what's so obvious to all of us to be the response to what the expert is saying, you know, whether it be the saline um, solution, whether the burning and, you know, they're not going to slow down. And part of it is whether it's correct or not. Lawyers are not always the best judges of people, but what we are trying to do at all times is to tell the most simple, coherent story to the jury. And oftentimes, all the time on both sides, you're thinking, if I give that extra fact, will it just lead to confusion or lead to doubt against me? And when you dig in your heels on whatever your theory is, I personally, I have not been defense counsel. I think my theory in a case like this, would have been to try everything at the spaghetti, you know, spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks and not care because I would try to go after the meta question of whether someone who did not mean to kill someone should be held criminally responsible. The meta question we talked about at the beginning, all the way down to factually, she didn't even kill her in this case. I would just do it all because there is so much confusion in this situation. And I think Based on the voir dire, you probably have a relatively educated jury in this instance because of the length of the trial, the kind of chemistry, medical knowledge type questions that can help the attorneys weed out people they think are not quite able to hold all this amount of information in their heads throughout trial and then make sense of it at the end. These are things that if you have a complex case, you're thinking about what, what your jury can actually process. So if I am already thinking I want a very knowledgeable jury, sometimes you don't want a knowledgeable jury, then I'm going to let them suss out the confusing parts of my theory, but create enough holes that nothing holds water on the prosecution side. But in this case, they kind of stuck to their guns, which is not bad. It is just a strategy to kind of two paths, and they didn't deviate from that. And that may have been their downfall. You never know. You you don't know what these jurors think unless they come out and speak, which they can if they want to, but they do not have to. But that may be why you and so many other nurses looked at each other and thought, there's an obvious real-life answer to this that they're not bringing out. It may not be because they don't know the answer. They decided not to, in their words, confuse the jury. And I hate to impugn fellow member of the bar, but I thought the defense did a terrible job. <laughs> I thought the defense, I, I just, I, you know, I just thought, God, you're just missing so many opportunities here. Because as a prosecutor, this case would terrify me. I, I just, there is no jury in the world that walked in there wanting to convict this woman. I just don't believe that. I, I think most jurors were looking for any reason, any reason to acquit her, I would think, for all the reasons we've talked about. You know, even if you thought she was somehow responsible, I mean, just looking for any out. Brett, let me cut you off for one second, just because we know what we're talking about. But let's give Tina's listeners a few reasons what could be offs for her. She's young. She's pretty. She looks like someone who could be your friend, right? She looks like someone that I'd probably want as my nurse. She has a pleasant demeanor. She's, you know, well-groomed. I don't want to send this young woman away for how, however many years if she's criminally convicted. And furthermore, she's already lost her license and her job. She's been punished in the kind of 
juror's mind, I don't have to be the one to hold her responsible for this woman's death because she's been held responsible in other areas. I'm putting this out for you because this is why I would have been very scared to prosecute her because of all those factors. If I was the defense, I'd have been like, half the things they told you are things she said. She has been absolutely honest about everything that happened. She has owned up to everything that she did. She's owned up to every mistake she made. The only reason they have her is because she was willing to go to the medical board and and to the police and talk to everybody about what went wrong and how to fix it. You know, that's what I would have been hammering. I would have been pure jury jury nullification. It would have been absolutely, you don't need to convict this woman because she's already been punished and she's accepted responsibility. And, And to me, I mean, that was her most powerful arguments. I mean, just if you're out there listening to this, go watch the defense's closing argument. Watch the defense's closing argument and ask yourself, would this convince me of anything? Because the answer is going to be no, it would not. And it's just unfortunate. But like, you know, they made their decision based on what they saw. And, and it's a tough job when you're faced with this kind of defense. But that would have been my path. Did you watch the defense's case? Did you blink? Because if you did, you may have missed it. He put one, one witness on there, one witness, and then... They rested, and Redonda basically testified through the testimony or the um, interview that she gave to the TBI agent of her own free will, no attorney present. By the way, Brett and Alice have told me on their podcast that I should always ask for an attorney and that it's totally fine to ask for an attorney. And I would recommend that you ask for an attorney if anything like this should ever happen to you. I know I will from now on. I will never just sit there and openly fill out an incident report. You know, that report that she filled out is something that we are, we, we're told, we're taught about that in nursing school. Doctors are taught about that in medical school. We are, exp- all of the stuff is explained to us that in just culture, in, in healthcare, you have to be open and honest about your mistakes. Otherwise, people will continue to die and you can't fix the system. So we work in a just culture that says, if you make a mistake, tell everyone, tell immediately, as soon as you know, you, you tell it, and then you can hopefully fix it, and maybe you, someone doesn't die. But even if something bad does happen, you can fix the system. And this, is, this was not handled that way at all. This entire thing fell. It completely imploded on her because she did everything that she was told that we're supposed to do. And that is, she, you know, and they used her own words, right? Just like you said, Brett, they used her words right back on her. She convicted herself because she said on that tape, an hour and 50 minutes, I listened to the whole thing. And she said, I can't tell you how many times I should not have done this. I should not have done that. I messed up. She said, I should have looked. I should have looked at that. Do you know why she said that? Because nurses are taught that at the end of the day, at the end of a shift, you look back, you reflect. It's called reflection. You look back on your day and you say, we all do this. There are, you look at social media at nurses. We're constantly beating ourselves up on the drive home, when we get home, when we're drinking our wine. We're sitting there going, what did I do? I can't believe I did that. I should never have done that. I can't believe I made that mistake. I could have killed someone. I, you know, we do that to ourselves. And so what she was saying, she said that to that TBI agent because she said it to herself because it's what we do. I should have done that. I should not have done that. I should have done it this way. I, I should have seen that. Those are words that we use to beat ourselves up so we don't make the mistake again. And they turned it around and they just beat her up with it and then convicted her with it. I can tell both of us have a lot to say because that's so heartbreaking. At the beginning of our conversation, I said that none of those changes that needed to happen to Vanderbilt and the nursing environment 
seem to have happened until this prosecution, but there are always unintended consequences. And if the unintended, and it seems as if there is a wave of this consequence, which is that nurses are not wanting to report truthfully immediately things that I agree with the way y'all are taught in general, right? If you realize your mistake, maybe something can still be done about it within the time frame that you realize it. Of course, we want people to report honestly. And we tell people that don't have to do with the medical profession that we're investigating, tell the truth, communicate with us. And it is heartbreaking to hear it from your perspective, because the first thing I thought before I knew anything about the case, when I saw the headlines was, I don't know the facts of this case, but I know that the unintended consequences will be huge here for the medical profession, for all the good actors. Even the people who do things perfectly will probably change their practice in some way that we did not intend that will make the practice worse, right? And that's what I'm hearing from you. And those are costs that factor into that prosecutorial discretion that you talked about. I will say for us, Brett and I have worked on a lot of cases together. Huge factor for me is whether the individual, the target, the person who's suspected of wrongdoing has been honest and has already gotten the just punishment to stop the wrongdoing, right? We don't want someone who continues to, say, steal drugs from the lab room for their own use. If they're not stopping and they didn't tell the truth, we're going to go prosecute them because there's an ongoing harm. But with someone like her who can no longer do any harm because she was fired and who who owned up to all of that, that's a situation where I've been faced with that type of a defendant. And it's hard for me to move forward when I think what's been just has been done. And that's why I bring back to what I said at the very beginning. I wonder if the prosecution was looking at this case as an easy way they knew they could meet the elements because of her own words to make a statement case. Whether that's fair game or not is another question. But because of all you said, individually, that's a tough case to move forward with. But if you look at it as the environment, and I, again, I don't know what they were thinking. Is that why they move forward? And then is that just? Yeah, uh, so I, I beat up on the prosecution, so... Now I'll beat up on the pro- or I'll beat up on the defense attorney, so now I'll beat up on the prosecution because I like to say things I shouldn't say. So, I mean, I, I don't know what all went into their decision to prosecute this case, and I'm just going to assume and hope that it was they really wanted to make some important changes, and they felt like this was the way to do it. I would have been over backwards not to prosecute this case. And, and like I said, I think she's totally guilty. I think she's completely guilty of negligent homicide. I just don't think there's any question. I think if you look at the elements, you look at what she did, she's guilty. But I think there are all sorts of reasons not to prosecute this case. And I don't know if you know, Tina, or if you want to comment on this, were there any deals offered? Was she offered any kind of, you know, plead guilty to some lesser charge and we'll make this go away type situation? She was, but it was still, she was still going to be a convicted felon. And she, she, they were going to place her on the state registry for people who abuse elderly people for the rest of her life. (laughs) So she just said... She really, you know, she, the whole time, you wouldn't believe this woman is a very strong person. And she literally went through this whole thing because she felt like the story needed to be told. She wanted this out there. She wanted everyone to know what is happening, us talking about this. She wanted us talking about this. So she could have 
probably accepted a you know, plea deal a long time ago, but she didn't feel like it was the right thing to do because she didn't feel like our healthcare system should be criminally prosecuting, or, or sorry, she didn't think that the, the criminal justice system could, should be criminally prosecuting people in the healthcare system. So yeah, she could have, but she chose not to. She didn't think that what they were offering. And apparently the prosecutor, according to her defense attorney, the prosecutor in this case is supposed to be, their thing is that they're trying to crack down on elder abuse. So it's like, that's their thing. And that's what they said. But that's our, that's my thing. That's my platform. That's what I ran on. I have to be tough on elder. And it's like, what does that have to do with anything? I will say, and I don't know if this has, well, I'm just going to say that one element that people have uh, pointed out in this case is that the district attorney, Glenn Funk, is a, a professor, an adjunct professor at Vanderbilt University. And so there's definitely some eye rolling going on there. People are kind of like, wait, wait, what? That's interesting. A lot of people just don't really understand how any of this happened. And it it just seems, there just seems to be maybe a, a little hint of impropriety going on there. I don't know. The main problem I would have with prosecuting this case is as a prosecutor, you want to make the world a better place. I mean, I, I look, let us not forget, there is a woman who is dead. Right. I mean, there is a woman who died because of this mistake. And that is something you always have to consider and it's something you always have to look at. But I think you also have to look at what's going to happen as a result of this. And if you're just thinking about this as a prosecutor, like Al said, and like you said, there is a, a gold mine of stuff. I mean, I'm just looking at a quote. I know the reason this patient is no longer here is because of me. There won't ever be a day that goes by that I don't think about what I did. I mean, as just a prosecutor, that is like, Wow. You know, I mean, you see that statement and you just think, man, we got them, right? Because that statement's coming in just as a matter of evidence, it's coming in. The problem is, and I think you alluded to this a little bit, what would you do if you're a nurse going forward and there are mistakes that are made? Are you going to say what happened so that, you know, people can learn from your mistakes and procedures can be improved and safety precautions can be put in place? Or are you just going to hire a lawyer? Because I just go ahead and tell you, I would be really inclined at this point just to hire a lawyer if I was a nurse who had a patient who died for any reason. I would be like, I'm not answering your questions. Forget that. Fifth Amendment, baby. Like, I'm not to say any of this stuff because none of that stuff is privileged. Every single thing she said can be used against her in a court of law. And, and it was. And that, I mean, of all the things we've talked about, the thing that is the most damaging to the medical profession going forward is going to be nurses who heard about the story saying, no. I'm not cooperating with your investigation. You can forget it. And on top of that, you know, I, I started out with the the analogy to Child Protective Services. There's a huge, obvious, glaring problem with my analogy, and that's that the level of education, schooling, and certification needed to be a nurse is very different than hiring extra counselors or buying quite literally extra beds to be able to house the children. So when the spotlight is focused when a child dies in Child Protective Services or because of the failure of Child Protective Services, more resources can be thrown at it. But if you have droves of nurses refusing to be nurses, to continue to work in the profession, and people at the outset deciding not to go to nursing school because it's not worth it, The juice is not worth the squeeze. At the end of the day, if you're going to be in an overworked environment, demonized, and then criminally prosecuted and convicted and go to prison for it, 
why even bother? I'm just going to go learn how to code and, you know, I don't know, move out to Silicon Valley or something. And so that is a glaring, you know, uh, problem in my analogy that I recognize at the beginning. And that's a huge unintended consequence. That's a huge unintended consequence of not only changing the practice of good nurses, of good, you know, practitioners within this field, but also discouraging people from even entering the field, which further exacerbates the problem, which I think we saw during the pandemic, that people were overworked and as a result left the profession making the resources even more strained, right? And so the the problem led to an exacerbation of that problem. And where we are now, I don't know what to do about that situation, but that certainly is something that should be factored when you're talking about prosecutions. But as you've noted, different prosecutors' offices work differently. Not every prosecutor's office is um, an elected position. Many of them are. And like any other politician, they do have to raise funds and then probably deliver on promises. And if, in fact, elder abuse is a platform or something that is a hot-button issue at the time— and you have the defendant saying those words that Brett just read out loud, you have an easy case on your hands, right? Again, whether that's just or not, just looking at the facts applied to the law, it's an easy case to win as a prosecutor. So I have to tell you guys about an experience I had with a nursing student. So you know I've been doing travel nursing. Well, this hospital where I'm at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. So one of them was following me around one day and she noticed my stethoscope. And of course, y'all know the Echo Technology Company that sponsors our podcast. They teamed up with Littman to make the stethoscopes, to beat all stethoscopes, the 3M Littman Core Digital Stethoscope. And this is the one that I use now. So she said, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to try one of those. So of course I let her use it. And she just could not stop talking about it for the rest of the shift. It was so cute. She was like, you know, I can't hear anything with my normal stethoscope because I have tinnitus. And so she was so excited because she could actually hear what heart sounds were supposed to sound like. She said, I'm going to ask for one of these for graduation. And I was like, yeah, you definitely should. So just so you know, the echo technology that makes the stethoscope so amazing. Uh, you can enable it with a flip of a switch. You can turn it on and off. It has active noise cancellation up to 40 times amplification, wireless auscultation using Bluetooth technology. It connects with Echo's free app and software so that you can visualize, record, share, live stream, analyze heart sounds, lung sounds, and whatever body sounds you want to listen to. So you can go to echohealth.com and use the promo code GNBN to get 10% off your order. And that's Echo is spelled E-K-O, by the way. So it's echohealth.com and use the GNBN promo code to get 10% off your order. Did you know that you don't have to go all across the country to be a travel nurse? You certainly can, but you don't have to. I literally took an assignment that's an hour and a half away from my house and I love it. I can stay in a hotel room if I want, or I can drive back home. So it's the best of both worlds for me. For my next assignment, we're going to get a cabin in the mountains that's about two hours from our house. So it'll really be like a little getaway. Also, one of my really good friends is going with me so we can share expenses. You guys, even if you're just a little curious about travel nursing, go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile. Can I ask you a question? This is something I've brought up several times to people, and, and it always makes their eyebrows go up. They're just like, oh, I never thought about that. You know, you, you're bringing up the different professions, and I've thought about the slippery slope that this could create. Mechanics who are working and doing their job and just 
doing everything to the best of their ability. And then, ooh, forgot to put lug nuts on a tire. They came off on the interstate and someone died as a result. Now that is that mechanic, you know, going to be held criminally liable for that. Then I also would take it a step further and ask if you think that prosecutors who made a mistake when they're trying a case, they go after someone and they had evidence there. This has happened. I know because I watched your crime like you wouldn't like nobody's business. So, you know, there are prosecutors. Brett, you probably rattle that off. You're constantly rattling stuff off the top of your head. But there are cases where prosecutors literally just missed something and they or just mishandled a case and they someone is wrongfully convicted and they lose decades of their lives or they lose their life in a death penalty case. Do you think that we should then go back and go back to that prosecutor and say, you know what, you should be held accountable criminally because you should have known better. You should be held to a higher standard because you are dealing with life and death here. So, I mean, it's an interesting question. I don't know that the answer is necessarily no on either one of those. You know, if you think about it, you entrust people in various professions with certain things. So take the mechanic. You know, you believe when you go to get your tires rotated, they're going to, you know, put the lug nuts back on. And if you're driving down the interstate and your tire rolls off because they didn't and you get in a car wreck, who's responsible for that? I mean, it is the mechanic. Right. If you have a prosecutor who has exculpatory information, they don't turn over to the defense and then someone is executed. I mean, that's an extreme circumstance. Right. But if you can, it's harder with the prosecutor, frankly, just because the criminal justice system is so complex and it's like harder to draw the the direct tie. Right. But say you could say you could. I mean, I don't know if you just look at the elements, maybe you could. And I think that's look, I think, as I said, these are hard cases always because you have somebody who didn't mean to do it. You know, like she did not mean to do this. Never would she have wanted this to happen. By all accounts, she was completely beside herself. She was constantly checking in on this patient to see whether she was okay. And she didn't mean for this to happen. And and they're really, but but those statutes exist. You know, they exist for a reason. And I think this goes all the way back to what Alice said at the very beginning. We talked about the drunk driver. I mean, whether or not it should apply to a pure accident, you know, whether someone being completely distracted, I mean, look, and I know this is going to, all the nurses are going to roll their eyes at me when I walk through this, but when I look at this case, I mean, I see somebody, they walk up to the machine, they type in VE, the first thing that comes up is verconium because alphabetical order or whatever, you know, they, they get that, they never, she never looks at it, ever, and the whole time, she never looks at it to see what drug it is. She doesn't notice it's a powder. She reconstitutes it. She, she doesn't show it to the nurse's aide. She doesn't scan it with a scanner that's available there. And then, as you said, when she gets into radiology, there is no scanner. She gives the drug to the patient. She doesn't stay to oversee her, even though the radiology tech is not someone who's qualified to do it. She just leaves. When I see all these things, it's like a cascade of things. If, if she had just looked at the bottle and read the name, I read the paralytic agent, and I get it. I know all the reasons she didn't. But if she had just done that, if she just hung out with a patient for a few minutes and seen like what happened and been there to administer the the antidote or whatever, you know, there's like the prosecution talks about there's a drug she could have administered, they reversed it, or she could have done this, or she could have done that. I mean, you just walk through all of the steps, and it's a cascade of failures, and it's a perfect storm. And I'll say this: I mean. I do think it's a perfect storm. And I know a lot of nurses out there are really concerned about this because everybody makes mistakes and everybody's made mistakes. And 
I really feel like this was sort of an extreme circumstance. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, like I said, maybe all the nurses are laughing at me. They're like, no, this happens all the time. Maybe it does. But it feels like there were just so many things that happened. And I feel like if most people out there who are in the nursing profession put themselves in those shoes, yeah, you might. there are individual things you might do, right? Like any individual thing that happened might be something that you've done in the past. But would you have done all of them? I mean, for instance, you talked about earlier, well, she didn't have her chart and all those other things. That seems like even more reason just to spend a few minutes with her to make sure the drug is working the way it's supposed to because you don't have that background information you needed. And she didn't do that. And I understand why she didn't do it, but she didn't. And so, like I said, I think there's a big difference between is she guilty, not of reckless, not what she was charged with because she wasn't guilty of that, but what the jury found her guilty of. Is she guilty of that just as a pure legal question applying the facts versus should she have been prosecuted? What should her sentence be? A lot of the things we've talked about today, I think, are great arguments at sentencing that this lady should get basically the minimum sentence possible. She's been convicted. We've done justice for the victim. This is not someone who needs to spend a lot of time in jail, if any, if possible. I mean, I think there's probably a one-year minimum here based on my reading of the statutes. But, I mean, more than that. And I'll be surprised if the judge gives her much of anything at sentencing. Yeah, I'd be making these arguments of essentially almost like there's no such thing as judge nullification. He's bound by whatever statutory minimum. But all the arguments we've brought up today, that she's already been punished, she is causing no harm, that she immediately confessed what she did and repeatedly did so and never recanted, even faced with federal or sorry, with a felony conviction. All of these things, while we were saying made it an unfortunately easy case factually for it to be sufficient to find her guilty of reckless homicide actually then turn around and are completely in her favor for purposes of an incredibly lenient sentence that if possible is you know outside of any guidelines that are calculated because there are guidelines they're usually suggested to keep people within certain ranges but i would argue that this is the extreme that she is the extreme because of all those factors that made it somewhat easy, right? I'm saying that lightheartedly, but not really, but factually able to convict her also then are in her favor for sentencing purposes. So I hope maybe they're listening to that and take note of it because now is the time. This is not argued to a jury. It's to the judge. There is There should be no risk of confusion in terms of theories for the judge. She's already been convicted. I would truly be throwing, I don't care about a coherent theory at this point. It would just be showing how maybe this case shouldn't have been brought, that it it has already caused outrage across the medical community, has already had unintended consequences. Judge, don't make this unintended consequence cascade further. You can stop this. That would be my argument. I hope that that's what happens. I think there are a lot of people really concerned. She's serving a life sentence as it is. I mean, she really is. She does. There isn't a day that goes by that she doesn't think about the victim and the family. And Really, nurses everywhere when this happened, it affected me. I cannot think about that case without just absolutely being almost traumatized mentally about just at the thought of what that woman went through in her death. It's horrifying, horrifying. And just the thought of it, a lot of nurses everywhere just almost, you almost just want to quit and just say, I can't risk, forget the criminal prosecution, I can't risk having to live with the fact that I did that to someone. That is so incredibly terrifying. She's having to live with that. 
she is living that nightmare. No matter what happens, she's ready to accept it. She's ready to accept whatever she has to. She's a very strong person, as I said. She's a very empathetic person. In the during the trial, there were there was a doctor, there were other nurses who testified for the prosecution, but then when the defense attorney cross-examined them, asked them, "What kind of nurse do you think she was? What kind of reputation did she have? What was she how was she known to be?" And across the board, she was an excellent nurse. She was, you know, excellent this is so ironic, but, you know, excellent attention to detail. We would give her our sickest patients, our highest acuity patients. She would watch our patient, her patients so closely. This was the physician. She would watch her patients so closely and let, let us know of any acute changes. You, She is who you wanted taking care of your sickest patients. I mean, it's just, it's sickening because it, it's so, it does make me think, God, that could be me. How could that not be me? I, that's who I want. That's the nurse that I want to be. That's who i hope I am, that I'm that conscientious. How could that person make that mistake? Right. It's so scary. Yeah. Yeah. You almost wish she were the troublemaker, right? She was, she was the one that... It would be so much easier. <laughs> it would be so much easier. Yeah. When this first happened several years ago, I remember thinking, there's more to this. There's going to be so much more that comes out. And I kept looking and looking. And, you know, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, when they investigate something, they investigate something. You can read that report, and it is crazy. It is so detailed. And I read the whole thing. I sat there and just poured through it. And just like, I remember when I finished just being like, okay, that, this is I mean, I, and I get it, I get all, you know, the, I understand, but I, as a nurse, as, you know, someone work that works in an intensive care unit at a large busy hospital that is understaffed, that is, that we don't have enough resources that, you know, and I have been a preceptor for, and she was precepting a new nurse that day that was following her around. It's very distracting. It's so distracting because you are tempted to want to explain everything you're doing and talk to them and teach them while you're doing other things. And if one thing I've learned from this is that I use this all the time whenever I'm teaching other nurses now. And I'm just like, you know, you can't, if somebody walks in while you're pulling medications out of the, the Omnicell, you cannot let them talk to you. You just got to hold your hand up and say, hold on, let me do this. And then I'll talk to you and just don't let them do it. Just pay attention, pick up the medication, look at it, read the label, hold it up to the screen, make sure it says the two to the two match, make sure it's what you're supposed to be pulling up, make sure that it's tied to the patient's name and that you're not overriding it. Like it's taught me how to teach other nurses. It's taught me how to be a better nurse and, you know, sure of myself. And hopefully, and I'm sure it has helped nurses all across the country, but unfortunately we've had to sacrifice, you know, this poor woman. And it didn't, it's not going to do anything to bring this woman back. It's not going to do anything to alleviate the pain and suffering that her family has had to endure and will continue to have to endure. And that's unfortunate. It really is. Yeah. And I think, you know, just to sort of wrap it up, I think that's, it goes back to what Alice said. I mean, I, I hope there, I guess there's three things I hope. Number one, I hope that Ms. Vaught is, I, I hope the judge is lenient with her. And the second thing is I hope that other nurses have taken the same thing out of this as you have, that you just have to be more careful. And I hope that prosecutors have seen this and have, Realize that when it comes to these kind of cases, you gotta be you gotta be really sure that this is the kind of case you want to prosecute because there are a lot of negative consequences that come out of it. Well, one thing that I will say is that 
we are kind of hoping to send a message to prosecutors all across the country because nurses, we have called on all people in healthcare in the, the city of Nashville and the, in Davidson County that election day is May the 3rd and Glenn Funk is running for re-election and Sarah Beth Myers is the person that's running against him. And it's a Democratic primary. They're both Democrats, not anything. I, I'm not going to get into that stuff. But she has openly come out and said that she does not think that this is a case that should have been prosecuted and she would not be coming out. She would not be coming after healthcare uh, professionals for making a mistake in the process of doing their job. That even if it does lead to death or serious bodily harm, that that is not for the criminal justice system to be overseeing. And so we have called on any and all healthcare people that live in that county to show up to the polls on May the 3rd and early voting, which is going on, actually starts on the 13th and speak your voice. You have the opportunity, you live there, you can show what you think about this. And if we're able to vote out an, an incumbent district attorney in a little race that's probably nobody normally pays a whole lot of attention to, it might just work to send a, help send a message or at least may, maybe think a little bit, you know, like, is it judicial to really do this? Should we do this? Is this the, the thing we should be doing? Because I suspect just from knowing kind of some other, just from talking to different people, I live in Tennessee, I know some people that live in that area. And I think it's suspected that maybe there were some other motives for the reason that this case was brought, you know, that maybe there's some cherry picking going on that has to do with bringing attention to oneself. <laughs> so I think it backfired. I think that when he originally decided to bring this case, he was not anticipating a pandemic that would cause it to <laughs> that would cause the whole thing to be pushed to where this whole thing is tried right the literally months, a couple of months before he's he has to go up for re-election. I'm pretty sure he didn't anticipate that happening. I will end on this hopeful note, at least. You know, we said time and again that we don't have a perfect judicial system and we will never have a perfect judicial system. But I really appreciate the work you've done in bringing attention to this and for turning out the vote where you think it matters, because we've always said those who just want to tear down the system and replace it with question mark is not helpful because we we all, I think, recognize there needs to be a system in which we work in. We've, you know, submitted to this society with a certain set of rules. Um, and if you disagree with those rules, then to do something about it and to offer solutions. And um, hearing what you've done here to bring um, a voice to an entire profession, to make sure that the facts and the experience of that profession are known within this very heart-wrenching case is incredibly helpful. And also making the voters and the people who are affected by the judicial system realize that they have a voice that they can change it. So, you know, we, we always say that if you don't like it, offer solutions for it. And it sounds like you are doing that every day here on your podcast. So we just feel so uh, honored to be to be talking with you about it. And thank you for what you do. Thank you. Thank you guys for being here. I really appreciate it. And I guess we can wrap it up. Just remind everybody, as if I haven't said it a million times, where they can find you guys. Well, we are the Prosecutors Podcast. You guys can check us out. Really anywhere, prosecutorspodcast at gmail.com. If you have things you want to email us or prosecutorspod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, come talk to us, ask us questions. We want to hear from you. And obviously you can get our podcast wherever you get podcasts. We are, we are there. And we are going to be covering this case 
in, in a couple weeks. We wanted to have this conversation first because this has been so enlightening and is going to make our discussion of this case, I think, so much better. So thank you so much, Tina, for having us on and for having this conversation with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. And you guys know you can email me at tina at goodnursebadnurse.com. You can find go to our website at goodnursebadnurse.com and we're on social media at goodnursebadnurse. And I just want to remind you guys that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse. Good nurse.